Pray with me one more time before God's Word is read. Lord God, we thank You for, for preaching because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Father, I pray that reading a large section of Scripture today would do good for our hearts. It would renew our minds. Father, for, for those of us that have felt so busy that we haven't been able to, to hear Your Word, I pray that, that hearing Your Word would refresh us deeply. Lord, we know that the unfolding of Your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And we confess, Lord, that we are simple-minded, that we go about in darkness so often we need the light and the warmth that you give by your light. Help us now to see your word, to see the intention of it, the, the author's intention, the meaning of it. Help us to see how it applies to our lives. And Father, help us to see your son, Jesus Christ, on these pages of the Old Testament. Give us grace in our time now, we pray. Amen. Before we read God's Word, I have a question for you to help pique your interest of what we're about to read. And it involves pronouncing words. So I want you to to look to somebody next to you, and I'm going to give you a word, two options of how to pronounce it, and I want you to, to say it out loud to the person next to you and see if it matches up. Okay? Ready? Find a partner. Word number one. Is it caramel or caramel? Go ahead and ask. Okay, word number two. Here's word number two. Is it syrup or syrup? Okay, word number three, final word, final word. Word number three, this is crucial. It is, is it pecan or pecan? Okay, raise your hand if you had a disagreement. I'm not going to call on you to say anything, but I just want to know if there's any disagreement. I see some hands. Okay. We can be very opinionated about how words are pronounced. In our passage today, people are slain. They are killed for pronouncing words wrong. I want to show you that. Turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 12. Judges chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6 before we read this whole passage. This is on page 212 in the Bibles that are provided there. Judges chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Judges 12, verses 5 and 6. It says, The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan. The fords are just the low part of the stream captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 Ephraimites fell. Things have gotten so bad in Israel that if you even pronounce a word wrongly, if you live on the wrong side of the tracks, you might be killed. 
what has gone wrong in the nation of Israel for this to even happen? This is an odd passage that we're about to look at today. It's dark. We're going to start back in chapter 10, verse 6, and read all the way to the end of chapter 12. This is going to take roughly about 10 and a half to 10 to 11 minutes to read. I pray that we would look at this passage, listen to it, and we'll spend some time exposing the meaning of it. But the best way to get a grasp of what's happening is to read this whole sweep of narrative. So we're going to start in chapter 10, Judges 10, verse 6 through the end of, verse, end of chapter 12. What is this passage about? There's a word that if you capture this word, the whole passage unfolds. Here's that word. Rejection. Rejection. There's two big ideas for this text and so for this sermon. And they're this. Idea number one, Israel rejects God. Israel rejects God. Idea number two, God displays his rejection through Jephthah. God displays his rejection through Jephthah. In other words, this book of Judges, which as we've seen time and time after again, God raising up Judges, We've seen God do that. We've seen the nation sink lower and lower into sin. This passage that we're seeing today, it's all about rejection. The first few judges that God raised up to lead them in military victory, they didn't have major blemishes. They just saved people in weird ways or gruesome ways. But as we saw last time and this time and even the next time that we're in Judges, we're going to see that the leaders God is raising up not only help the people militarily, but they themselves are deeply flawed. And so God is rejected by Israel, and here's what he's saying to Israel. He's saying, Israel, to help you see how badly you've been rejecting me, I'm going to raise up a judge for you, a guy that's been despised and forsaken and rejected himself, but you're going to suddenly need him. He's going to save you. His enemies are going to reject him. Ammonites. And to make sure that you really get the picture to turn up the contrast, I'm going to cause this hero to reject his only pure and devoted daughter and burn her to death. And then I'm not done yet. I'm going to cause his fellow countrymen to come at him and dispute with him so that he rejects them and slaughters 42,000 of them. In other words, Israel, I want you to see how badly you're rejecting me and what the consequences of that are. So I'm going to paint this picture of Jephthah's life for you to see. That's what we want to look at this morning. We want to realize the main point of this passage that the one that we so often reject, God himself, is the one we desperately need. I don't know about you, the last time you felt rejection. Depending on the type of rejection you feel, it it could either be extremely painful or just annoying. It can be annoying if you're playing in a recreational sports league and you're driving down the lane in basketball and somebody rejects your thought. 
Your shot is just completely rejected. You're shamed. You're not tall enough, fast enough, strong enough. Students, others who are around vending machines, you can get rejected when that folded dollar bill from your pocket goes in the machine and gets spit right back out. That's kind of light-hearted rejection. The deeper rejection is when you write a letter to a bank or you meet with a bank in person for a loan and they reject your offer for a loan. When you try to get into a school that you really wanted to or get a job that you really wanted and what's told back is sorry. There's rejection. But the deepest kind of rejection, if we're honest, is the rejection of a dysfunctional family. I don't know the dysfunction going on in your families to the detail that you do. But here's what I know. All of us, every person that can hear my voice, finds themselves in a dysfunctional family. If you have certain people that you look at and you think, hmm, that family over there, they're they're fine. Nothing's going on. It makes me tearful because those are the type of families that tell me, yeah, people think everything's fine. Rejection is so painful when it's at the family level, is it not? If your parents reject you and treat you poorly as a child, as a youth, it's, it's stinging pain that doesn't go away. If your extended family disowns you, if you felt rejected by the death of a spouse or a child, that's a form of rejection. Their life has been taken away from you. I don't know all the details of your rejection, how your family seems very on the surface dysfunctional or just behind the scenes dysfunctional. I don't, I don't know at what levels it faces you, but I do know that God's word puts our faces right up close to a bunch of dysfunction and rejection this morning because God wants to teach us something. So let's spend just a few minutes looking at, at these two big ideas. That first big idea, Israel rejects God. We want to see how bad that is. And then when we think about Jephthah's life, There's four different windows here, four different portraits of his family and his enemies and his own daughter and his countrymen that teach us about rejecting God. So first, that big idea of Israel rejecting the Lord. Why is it such a big deal that they reject him? I mean, hadn't they already been doing that? Look with me at verse 6. How bad did it get for Israel in rejecting God? Well, here's how bad it got. Verse 6. Seven different foreign gods are mentioned there. Not just one, not just Baal. Seven different nations. Of all places in the book of Judges, this is the one place where the most idols are mentioned. Israel is so spread out in their multifaceted rejection of God, they're willing to go down any road other than devotion to the Lord. So put your eyes on verse 7. Here's how we know this is a big deal. Verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, 
and, so two nations, and the hand of the Ammonites. Verse 8, they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed them. Throughout the book of Judges, as discipline and punishment, when Israel would reject God and pursue idolatry, God would raise up some other foreign nation to oppress them. Now, they're pinched from both sides. The Philistines and the Amorites, as far east and west as you could go in the boundaries of Israel, they're now crushing the nation. It's ripping the nation apart. And it goes on for 18 years. God says in verse 13, verse 13, You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, six words that you never want to hear from God, I will save you no more. Verse 14, Go. Cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Is God suddenly acting mean? I mean, is he all of a sudden just being prickly towards them and mean? Where's all this grace that the prophets so often talk about? God being gracious. His grace is always highly praised. Well, seven times the Lord showed that he gave them deliverance. Put your eyes on verses 11 and 12 there. That's the proof. Seven different nations are listed, which matches perfectly with those previous verses about how they had seven different idolatrous nations that they worship, their gods. God's grace has actually matched them step for step in their rebellion, but they keep putting his hand away. They keep turning away the hand of grace. Is this a real end to God's grace? Has time run out for them? Proverbs chapter 1 verse 25 says, Because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and didn't choose the fear of the Lord. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. It sure seems like God's grace has just completely run out here. It should alert us as Christians, because as Christians we understand that yes, God is gracious, but if we're not careful after a while as Christians, we can subtly begin to think that God's actually responding to us instead of us responding to Him. As if we control God, as if we're calling the shots, as if God owes us something and He's obligated to obey our wishes, that we can actually get God to do what we want if we repent. We can flip the switch on our repentance whenever we need it, and we have God as our friend again. It's kind of the analogy of of when I was working in the hospital throughout college, year after year. I was cleaning people up in those hospital beds and drawing blood, doing all this, thinking, this is hard work. You know what would happen? People would hit their call light. You know what a call light is, right? Some people would hit their call light because they really needed something. You know where this is going. They really needed something. They needed water because their water had ran out. They were completely parched, 
And they'd actually been there an hour because the previous shift of healthcare team forgot about them. They really needed water. They needed something badly. They were, they were bleeding and they noticed it. And they hit their call light. We come and help. But there are those other patients, often in the acute care units, who just hit the call light every five minutes, then every two minutes, then every 30 seconds because they want a piece of gum. They want you to throw their wrapper away for them in the trash. They want you to perfectly tuck their sheets in over them. And it can go on and on. What's the difference in those two type of people? True or false, they both need something. True. The problem is that one person might cry out in need and have a genuine need. The other person uses the cloak of needing something just to manipulate somebody, to get them to do whatever they want, to put somebody else as their servant underneath them. That's what Israel is doing to God here. Let me prove it to you that their repentance here is just kind of like a stick that they're hitting on a pinata. It's not real repentance. Look at verse 10. I want to prove this to you. Show you how hypocritical this is. Verse 10, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord, we've sinned against you. We've forsaken you. We've forsaken our God and served the Baals. But they're not repenting. Glance at verse 16. That looks a lot more like repenting, doesn't it? Now they're doing something about it. Verse 16, they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The timing of that pseudo-repentance is significant, is it not? They only put away their foreign gods after God had dropped the hammer down. No, I'm not going to save you anymore. They didn't put away their foreign gods in verse 10. They're just testing. Let's, let's call out. Let's not really repent. Let's see. And then even in verse 16, it almost seems just like behavior modification. It's kind of striking there when God says, his word says that he became impatient. That can seem confusing because we know God's patient. That, that could simply be translated that God could no longer bear with their misery. So God's about to act in their lives not because they are so repentant and it looks so good how much they repent and it's so amazing how they're putting away these idols. That's not why God is disposed to act for them. That's not why God would ever act on your behalf. He's acting on their behalf to help them out because he has pity on them. He sees how horrible their situation is. He has pity and compassion that moves him. Earlier in the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 18, says whenever God would raise up a judge, it was because of their groaning and the pity which they were in. Not because how much they were worthy or how much they repented. Take note of a profound statement by by a Presbyterian pastor. His name is Dale Davis. He's talking about repentance. I read it this week. He said, Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of God's compassion. Repentance might be a condition, but not the cause of God's grace. That deserves careful listening. Repentance is a condition, 
but not the cause of God's grace. When we're talking about salvation. God is sovereign. He elects whomever He will. He will have mercy on whomever He will. If we think, even for a moment, God saves me because I repent. It's based on me. That's why He's acting for me. It's no longer mercy, and it's no longer grace. Mercy and grace, it's that one-way love, the unmerited favor, the unmerited compassion. It does not start with you. Yes, you are involved. We're not robotic. God's commands are real when he says repent. But that's a condition to show that that our faith is real, that our coming to God is open-handed, that we're not demanding something from him. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, says the Lord. So like I said, it seems like they're repenting, right? Verse 16. But let me give you a little bit further proof. They're actually not repenting. It's just behavior modification. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now you might be thinking, Okay, how is that evidence that they're not truly repenting? Briefly, flip to the very first verse of Judges. Turn with me. The very first verse of Judges. We have to keep this verse in mind when we read Judges chapter 10, verse 18. Here's the first verse of Judges. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? They inquired of the Lord, who's going to go for us and fight? Back over to chapter 10, last verse, verse 18. Do you see what is so absent from verse 18? The Lord? It's the very same question that's haunted them the entire book. Who's going to be our leader? Who's going to fight for us? Who's going to save us? Who's going to deliver us? At the beginning of the book, O Lord, who will lead us? Father, who will lead us? Great God, who who will you raise up for us? Here in verse 18, their eyes are completely horizontal. They're not looking up to God. There's no vertical crying out to God. There's no dependence upon Him and trust in Him. There's just a lot of words, a lot of behavior modification with no heart change, and the same old questions, but they leave God out of it. It's striking to see this rejection that Israel has when it has so much religiosity caked on top of it, isn't it? There's a lot of application for us. We see it in Jephthah's life too, but... One thing we can note from all this is that sin encourages more sin and sin comforts itself by saying, let's just do some behavior modification. Let's just say some trite words to God. Let's just figure out the right questions to ask about our sin and that solves it. They had the right questions. They knew the right God that they should go to. They knew what they were supposed to do getting rid of their idols But all of these things were in a swirl of rejection against God to still do what they wanted. 
I wonder how you are fighting and battling sin in your life. Husbands, ask your wives. Wives, ask your husbands. Are you really repenting? Are you really repenting of the things that you say, yeah, I need to change that? Or is it just behavior modification? Are you praying to God and so confident that everything's okay before you've actually repented? That's what's happening in verse 10. This is, brothers and sisters, this is why we need the church. College students, I don't expect you all to figure out how to repent on your own, especially if you're new Christians. Senior adults, I don't expect you to know how to repent well and perfectly just because you followed the Lord decade after decade after decade. This is one of the glorious reasons God gave us the local church. We can be so crafty in how we repent, and we don't actually repent. We don't actually seek God. This is why I love the, the loving relationships that are here. Some of you are sitting by your best friends right now. Some of you, your friends are a couple rows apart from you. I don't want to call you out who your friends are. But I know there's great friendships here. Have you ever thought that you can leverage your friendships, your relational capital with the people you love, to help show them when they're not really repenting? That's what God does right here in this passage. Israel, you're not repenting, you're rejecting me. So here we go, Jephthah's life. Now I want to spend roughly just a brief minute on each of these four snippets. We're not going to go into all the details of Jephthah's life. We don't have time for that. But if you're taking notes, four windows into Jephthah's life that actually shed light on how Israel is rejecting God, okay? Window number one. Jephthah's household rejects him. Jephthah's household rejects him. This is verses 1 through 11. Jephthah's this mighty warrior, but his siblings are like, you know what? He's really strong. He can fight well, but he's going to take away our inheritance. Let's get rid of him. They disown him. He's the son of a prostitute. They have the same father, but different mothers. They disown him. There's so much rejection here, but the one rejected is actually the one needed. They end up needing him again. Notice verse 6. They end up saying to him in due time, Come and be our leader, Jephthah. And Jephthah says, I thought you hated me. They don't apologize. They just try to use him to get what they want. Does that sound familiar? This is what Israel is doing. Israel is just trying to use God to get what they want. They don't really want God. Jephthah's family doesn't really want him in a loving relationship, enjoyment. They just want him to kill their enemy so they can get back to doing what they want. Israel is doing this to God. There is some application here, though. Just like Jephthah, maybe there are some of you that are downcast and down on yourself because of the dysfunction in your family, Jephthah had every reason to not even talk to them, to hold a bitter grudge. Jephthah had every reason to think, the Lord's not going to do anything with my life because my family's so messed up. 
God's Word shows us the exact reverse of that. Your worth is not determined by how picture-perfect your family is. It is important how you treat your family, and we're going to see that in a second. But some of you carry unnecessary weight as if the sins happening in your family, especially the sins that are done to you, somehow make you worthless in God's sight, like he can't use you. Well, Jephthah's household rejects him, but, but they end up needing him. But look at the rejection. It's not just among his family. Now it's on the outside. This is window number two, verses 12 through 33. Jephthah's enemies reject him. Jephthah's enemies reject him. Window number two here. Jephthah in Hebrews is said to be a man of faith. We just saw that with his brothers because he called upon the Lord. Here he's a man of faith because he doesn't go right into a battle and fight. With If we remember, he's a mighty warrior. He goes into diplomatic speech. That's an evidence of faith. He's not relying on his own strength right off the bat. He has faith. But the Ammonites here reject him. To summarize it, they basically say, hey Jephthah, we're fighting you because you took our land. What's up with that? And Jephthah doesn't run up and start fighting. He sends words He sends a historical argument their way, a theological argument, and even a moral argument. The historical argument, he says, hey, when we came here, when we left Egypt, we actually went around and were careful to not go into the territories to start wars. We actually sent peace treaties. History shows that we were actually very gracious to you. The theological argument that he gives, hey, If your gods are so powerful, why don't you just take what your God gives you and we take what our God gives us? Our God gave us this land. And he goes back to the historical argument and says, you actually started the war with us. And then he gives the moral argument and he says, you're sinning against me right now. I'm not doing anything wrong. But they don't listen. The, The enemies reject him. Not listening to clear rational, historical, theological, and moral arguments, plugging your ears up to those, does that sound familiar? That's what Israel is doing to God at this time. Israel is not listening to to God's word, to the history of how he's been faithful in the past. And then things get even more tragic in rejection. Because now, God's going to use Jephthah's life, not just with his household, extended family, and his enemies. He's going to use his own house, his daughter, to display rejection. This is window number three. Window number three, Jephthah rejects his daughter. Jephthah rejects his daughter. There's a lot of details here, but the narrative doesn't give us details so much about the battle and gruesome scenes from the battle. It goes straight to Jephthah before and after the battle, the vow he makes and with his daughter. Put your eyes there on verse 34. Verse 34. Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Parents and grandparents, family trees that have young children. Isn't it amazing when a little kid runs up to you and they want your attention? They want to hug you. They want to sing and dance in your presence. There are a few things more joyful than that. 
But there's a problem here. Why doesn't Jephthah rejoice with his daughter? He just came home from war. Well, the answer to that is back up in verse 30. Verse 30, Jephthah had made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up as a burnt offering. As soon as he saw his daughter, verse 35, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. He's actually putting the blame on her, acting as if she did something she shouldn't do. You're causing me harm and trouble. And he explains his vow to her. He says in verse 35 what he's thinking. We don't have to wonder, what is he thinking? Verse 35, the second half of verse 35. I have opened my mouth to the Lord. I cannot take back my vow. Now, as discerning Bible readers, whenever you see any character of Scripture make any statement, there's a lot of questions you can ask. One of the questions you should always be asking yourself, true or false? True or false? According to the Scripture that is revealed, is that a true or false statement? Jephthah just said, I can't take back my vow. True or false? Well, Deuteronomy 23 tells us, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord where God will require it of you. Don't delay fulfilling it. He gives her two months to go mourn. He's, he's breaking the law. If the law that he's thinking of is Deuteronomy 23, he's already not keeping it because he's not immediately fulfilling his vow. But there's actually a, a better picture of God's law that shows how much rejection is, is bound up in this vow of him rejecting his daughter. That's Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5 tells us if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath, which is what Jephthah did, a rash oath to do evil or to do good, or any sort of rash oath that people swear, he's to confess his sin and make compensation for his sin. That's what Jephthah should do, but as the text here shows, He just gives her two months to go and cry about it. And whatever law of God that he's rehearsing in his mind, he's not changing his ways. Maybe it's the pride of victory. Maybe he thinks to to go back on my word is to reject myself and I love myself more than my daughter or I can't go back and sin again against God and change my vow. Who knows all the reasons he had. He's neglecting the weightier matters of the law. A few more thoughts on window number three before we close with window four. This principle of how we treat our family members matters profoundly. Jephthah burned his daughter in sacrifice, killed her. What we do with those close to us, family, church family, roommates, How we treat those closest to us is the platform where our faith is displayed. Your faith is not on display just on Sundays or just when you're in Bible studies. It's really all the time, especially when you're around family. We should beware, according to Jephthah's life here, we should beware that our devotion to the Lord, 
or our commitments or the things we hastily say and commit ourselves to don't hurt our families. Jephthah uses his piety, so it seems to the Lord, as a blanket to cover his selfish autonomy. As everywhere else in the book, he's doing what's right in his own eyes. The wickedness of keeping his vow is plain from God's law. Even God's law after this, centuries later, Proverbs 25, 20, 25 says, It's a snare to say rashly it's holy and then reflect only after vows have been made. Ecclesiastes 5, which Zach read for us in this service, also commends not being hasty with their speech. Jephthah should have admitted his sin, told his daughter, I spoke too quickly. I had a good impulse and a horrible application, and then I was too stubborn to change the application of it. And it reminds us as Christians that we are capable of great sin, even though we've just done things of faith for God. He just had this battle where he fought for God in faith. Do you believe that? Not just those who don't know Christ sin, but do you believe that a Christian can sin horribly, deeply, and cause great damage? A Christian, they can. Let this be a warning to us. And again, this is all a picture of what Israel has done, is it not? Jephthah rejects his pure and devoted daughter. When she says she's weeping for her virginity, some would say, well, he didn't really kill her, he just committed her to a life of singleness. And that's why virginity is mentioned. That's not what the text shows us. The text shows us he made a vow to burn his daughter, and then he kept his vow with no modification. The text shows us by its context that the book of Judges is grim and dark and we should actually expect heinous, crazy autonomy to reign. Even in chapter 12, when Jephthah is threatened to be burned by his countrymen, perhaps they're saying that to him because he just burned his daughter. This is a complete reversal. It's, It's everything different than Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac when the Lord commanded him to do it and stopped him. Here we see the complete undoing of that. Why is God showing this episode of Jephthah's life to his people? Why is he showing it to you this morning? Why would God have you come and sit in this service and for so and so many minutes hear about a guy who burns his daughter? Because this part of the passage points you, points me, to Jesus Christ. Jephthah rejects a pure, devoted daughter who did nothing wrong. Israel is rejecting God who is pure and excellent and perfect. They are pushing Him away. This is the reason God sent Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4 tells us Christ was rejected. He's the rejected cornerstone. Isaiah 53 tells us he was despised and rejected by men. He was crushed for our iniquities. This part of the passage, and even the entire passage, points us to Christ. No matter who you've hurt or who's hurt you in your life, this earthly life, the fundamental person that you have rejected and you are always tempted to continue to reject is the Lord. 
Those who don't know God are rejecting him every second of every day. Those who know the Lord are often tempted to reject him and go their own way and give into the flesh. This passage is calling us, brothers and sisters, wake up. Look how serious rejecting God is. Look how easy it can happen. Look how the cover of religious devotion can be slipped over top of rejecting God and doing things that hurt those around us. The final window we're given here is window number four. We'll close with this thought. Jephthah's countrymen reject him. His countrymen reject him. We've read it a few times already. They pronounce words wrong. That was the target, the indicator of who was in the opposite tribe. Ephraim couldn't handle war happening without them being a part of the war. They've done that chapter after chapter in this book. This final window that God paints is to show that the greatest threat is not out there, it's themselves. The friction and fighting amongst themselves. Even all the judges that come after this, how chapter 12 closes, they're short little reigns of judgment. Seven years, ten years, six years, eight years. Whereas earlier in the book, it was 40 years of peace. 80 years. God's showing them how fractured they are becoming. He's still just as gracious as he's always been, but they are getting stiffer and stiffer with their hand out, pushing away his grace, doing their own way. So the tenure of their judges doesn't even last. This is a dark passage, but it's helpful for us. If you're not a Christian today, here is the way of salvation. It's to recognize that what's going on in the passage we just read is what your life looks like apart from Christ. You're rejecting God. You're rejecting the sacrifice of his only son who died and rose again in your place. You're rejecting the offer of repenting of your sin, keeping your hands open in faith, receiving the gift of his salvation, and having eternal life with him. I'm asking you today, stop rejecting God. What reason do you have that's worthy of rejecting God. And if you're a Christian this morning, my goodness, we could all testify how tempting it is to reject God even after we've come to know Him. Let this passage warn us that great evil can happen from Christians, flawed Christians. And all these things, our only hope is that God's grace is greater than our sin. And God continues to be gracious here because he has pity, not because they're so good at repenting. I would invite you to think about how gracious God is. It's greater than all of your sin. Let's close in prayer and sing that hymn. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for being so gracious so often. Being gracious to us, Lord, when we think we don't deserve it, and being gracious to us even in those, those twisted moments where we think we've somehow earned your favor. I pray, Lord, that your word would, would go with us as we leave this place and change the way we live publicly and live with our families and live even privately. Let us bank on your grace. Help us, Lord, to trust that, that if we have any desires for true repentance, it's, it's already a gift of you to desire that. 
and help us to be enabled to follow through. Thank you for showing us Christ here. Help us to treasure him. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace being greater than our sin. Amen.